This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. I believe in death. I believe in disease. I believe in injustice and inhumanity and torture and anger and hate. I believe in murder. I believe in pain. I believe in cruelty and infidelity. I believe in slime and stink and in every crawling putrid thing, every possible ugliness and corruption, you son of a bitch! I believe! In you. Live from the recent past in New York City, welcome to 21 Jump Scare. I'm Bradford Lorick. And I'm Eric Winnick. 21 Jump Scare is a podcast about horror films told from two, that's two, two points of view. Just two? Just two. Well, we call this podcast 21 Jump Scare because, at least for now, our plan is to produce only 21 episodes. But also because, as in a certain TV series that's television from the late 1980s, one of us is going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And this poor downtrodden soul will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. So each week, we bring you a film from the perspective of someone re-watching it, me, and from the POV of someone experiencing it for the first time, which is to say... You. What'd you think of that POV film lingo? I like that. I like that a lot. Is it a medium shot or an establishing shot? Uh, It's a master. So now let us turn to this week's film, William Friedkin's 1973 classic demonic shocker, The Exorcist. Sorry, Eric, I don't want to interrupt you, but we're, um, we're, we're talking about William Peter Blatty's 1990 psychological horror film, The Exorcist 3. Thank God, Bradford, because I have not seen the first film in ages. I'm shocked you have even seen The Exorcist. Uh, so as our first timer, why don't you uh, start us off with a brief synopsis? 1990, Georgetown, Washington, D.C. A series of grisly murders are taking place around town, all of which bear a striking resemblance to those committed by a serial killer 15 years earlier, a killer known as the Gemini, who is caught and executed. So who is committing these crimes now? Lieutenant Bill Kinderman is observing an anniversary of his own, 
It's been 15 years since a friend of his, Father Damien Karras, was expelled from the bedroom window of a girl named Regan McNeil and tumbled down a long, unforgiving flight of steps to his death. Lieutenant Kinderman takes his friend, Father Dyer, to a movie and lunch, and the two talk over old times and discuss the carp that has been swimming in the... <laughs> Why you do this to me, Dimmy? Why? Why? Can't get through it. Why? Uh, it's known okay. as the carp monologue. It's, um, yes. And discuss the carp that has been swimming in the lieutenant's bathtub the last few days. Soon, Father Dyer is admitted to a hospital, and while there, he falls victim to a killing that bears the signature of the Gemini. Informed by the hospital's chief psychiatrist, Dr. Temple, that one of his patients, a catatonic man found 15 years ago wandering D.C. with amnesia, has begun showing signs of consciousness, Kinderman visits the patient in the hospital's psych ward, only to realize the patient bears a striking resemblance to the long-dead Father Karras, but also to the Gemini himself. Who is this mysterious patient? And if he's locked in a padded cell, how are these new murders taking place? And what might they have to do with a particular exorcism that took place in Georgetown 15 years earlier? Alrighty, sir. Well done. So who's in this film? Okay, so this film stars Oscar winner George C. Scott as Lieutenant Kinderman, a DC detective who was a, a, a smaller role in the first film, then played by Lee J. Cobb. There's also Brad Dourif playing himself and a character known as the Gemini Killer. There's also the wonderful Vivica Lindfors as a mysterious character known only in the credits as Nurse X. Nancy Fish, oh, I love Nancy Fish, as the inscrutable Nurse Allerton. Ed, don't call me Ned, Flanders, as Kinderman's good buddy, Father Dyer. And my old Scranton buddy, Jason Miller who makes a return appearance, sort of, as a character referred to as Patient X, but who may also be the late father, Damien Karras. We just don't know. The director and screenwriter of this film is William Peter Blatty, based on his book, Legion. Blatty, also best known as the author and screenwriter of the original Exorcist, but not the author of The Exorcist Two. The Heretic, which is another story entirely. Well, as a director, Blatty's credits were few, most notably the ninth configuration 10 years earlier. You, sir, I assume are familiar with The Exorcist to The Heretic, the book Legion and uh, the ninth configuration. And it's here that I'm going to ask you to speak in somewhat spoiler-free detail about your experience of those properties. Didn't read Legion. The oh. Ninth Configuration is on my watch list. Oh. And um, The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, I started in, I don't know, 1988. 
Yeah. And I haven't made it back to it. It's terrible. It's terrible. Really? Everybody acknowledges that The Exorcist 2 is terrible. What's terrible about it? I'm just curious. I mean, literally every choice. Apparently, the script that everybody committed to, to acting in changed dramatically throughout the course of production. Linda Blair had to learn how to tap dance. There's like a weird sex scene, seduction scene. Uh, with Richard Burton and Linda Blair, who was like 17 at the time, didn't want to do it. And I mean, frankly, it just bears very little resemblance uh, in terms of continuity, I guess. I mean, really to the tone and, and style of the original film. And it was yeah. directed by John Borman, right? Who directed it Deliverance. It was directed by Borman, yes. Which is odd. Uh, and frankly, I think squealing like a pig is preferable mm. to watching The Exorcist 2. Mm. That is yeah. very strange, but but as we will get into a little bit, the fact that The Exorcist Two, the heretic exists, had a lot to do with what wound up happening on this film, The Exorcist oh. Three. Oh um, boy, howdy did it! So, uh, Mr. Winnick, how did this film do? This film was apparently made for eleven million dollars. It opened in first place on its opening weekend, which was August nineteenth, nineteen ninety when I was working in, wait for it, Georgetown, Washington, D.C., but we'll talk about that later, earning just over $9 million in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, it went on to gross just over $26 million in the U.S. and Canada and $18 million worldwide for a total of $44 million, which was something of a letdown, you might say, when you consider the original Exorcist was nothing short of a worldwide sensation. Yeah, this film did not go on to be nominated for an Academy Award. However, it did win a Saturn Award for mm. Best Writing from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. It was also nominated for Best Horror Film, uh, and Brad Dourif was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Shockingly, George C. Scott was nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Actor, but lost to Andrew Dice Clay for The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. You know, for me, winning a Saturn would be the greatest crowning honor, achievement, the greatest yeah. honor that any of us could achieve. But Scott, I'm sure, carried that Razzie nomination proudly. I bet it made things really touchy for, you know, when, when George and, and Dice were hanging out, though. Well, you know, I don't, probably I mean, a little bit awkward. So now's about the time that we need to issue a full spoiler alert. So we will be spoiling this film completely and utterly. If you have not seen this film, please, please watch it. Then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. All right, sir, The Exorcist 3, let's get into it. So how'd you first hear about it, and um, where'd you see it? Well, I just turned 12, uh, <laughs> and I probably saw a commercial for it on TV, mm -hmm. or perhaps um, a as a trailer for another film that I, I would have seen you know, at the movies. But my dad took my seven-year-old brother and me to see it in the theater. And I was totally excited about it. I remember everything about it from that first watch. Mm. Uh, though I have probably seen it somewhere around, I don't know, 25 times since then, maybe. Um, 
it really is like the kind of thing that I, I return to again and again, like the silence of the lambs, you know, I enjoy mm -hmm. it very much. Um, but yeah, I saw it in the movie theater, the Eric movie theater in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. I, I love this movie. And did you see it with Jason Miller? I didn't see it with Jason Miller. Mm. I didn't, I didn't get to meet Jason until very close to the end of his life. Right. Uh, on a you know summer break at home from Vassar, uh, out with friends who were mutual friends with Jason, uh, who lived in Scranton, um, and uh, yeah, we um, hung out a bit over a, a summer. I think between my junior and senior years in college, maybe. And what was what was Jason Miller doing at that time? Drinking. Was he working? No, no, I don't. I don't. I don't remember what his last film was. He had done a little bit of theater. I think um, I could be wrong about this, but he may have been in a production of the Fantastics in a, in a park in Pennsylvania. He was affiliated with an organization called the Scranton Public Theater. And uh, yeah, we had drinks at a fabulous hotel in Scranton. Um, it's a, a Radisson now, but it's a former train station. Yeah, gorgeous, uh, gorgeous space. Lots of stained glass, and I mean, really beautiful, exquisite uh, venue. Um, but we, I, I used to spend a lot of time at the bar and restaurant there with friends, and Jason uh, did too. <laughs> Was he just? sitting at the bar drinking alone i mean what no he um well again i mean you know he was sort of like i i think i was um very close with somebody who was in the show and you know we we would be out and jason would be out i mean it's a i don't know if you know this but it's a pretty small town and jason lived uh in the downtown um yeah. not not too far from the hotel right uh and so i think he had a a much younger wife or girlfriend at the time uh and we would just kind of hang out uh yeah. at um at the bar at the hotel you wouldn't see him sort of sitting there murmuring to himself about the fact the power that he... of christ compelling him well or the fact that he'd <laughs> won a pulitzer prize you know for that championship season and then sort of never quite recaptured the glory of the the early years you know between the prize and, well, and appearing in the most successful horror film of all time well i mean you know how do you bounce back from a pulitzer you know what do you do <laughs> next well i mean nothing he wrote i think ever really achieved the success of that first that first play i don't know you know i mean i think you get to a point when you uh you might rest on some of those pretty impressive laurels um he had a good run yes yeah, yeah. So why did you choose this film for me to see as part of my education? Well, it has a reputation among aficionados of horror films as being one of the best, you know? Uh, and in terms of... The best ever or like the best of like 1990? No, people love The Exorcist 3. And I think right. for good reason. I think it's an incredibly um, smart literate film. I think it's well made. I think it's exceedingly well acted. I mean, Golden Raspberry Award notwithstanding, I think George C. Scott is, you know, one of our finest actors. Tell me that he was not fantastic in Dr. Strangelove, you know? Oh, and Patton. Um, I mean, like, the, no, Patton, the, there's sure. no question. The guy was, the guy was a giant. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, I actually 
agree with you. I don't think he was deserving of the Razzie at all. Um, right. Nomination. But, I mean, excuse me. He, excuse me. Dice, of course, earned it. But he, I'm just saying. Please do do not take away the honor from Andrew Dice Clay. No, I would never do such a thing. I mean, for its genre and for its time, I I think there are few horror films that are that match this on really right. any level. Right. Um, and I think that it uh, it's strange and it's beautiful and it's very well written. I think the performances are terrific um, and I hold it in very high regard. Well, sir, I have to tell you, um, it was a very strange experience watching this film for me. Oh, I bet it was. I mean, um, you were seeing this for the first time. Well, what's weird is that I have a, a little bit of history with that street. It's actually Prospect and 36th in Georgetown. The corner of those two streets, there's a building called the Walsh Building, which is, I believe, an arts building, part of the Georgetown campus. And in the summer of 1990, which was right after I graduated from college, I was acting with a theater company called the Potomac Theater Project, which basically featured kids right out of Middlebury, college where I went in the productions alongside professional actors. It was a great experience. I had a place, I lived on Capitol Hill and I would get on the the orange or the blue line from um, Eastern Market and I would take it to uh, Foggy Bottom and I would walk a long way up Wisconsin to the Walsh Building to the Hall of Nations Black Box Theater, directly across the street from the 1789 restaurant, the Tombs Bar, and Wise Miller's Deli, all of which can be seen in this film. And at night, I would walk home. Sometimes I would walk to Foggy Bottom, which was the closest metro stop. There are no metro stops in Georgetown. Or I would walk down the Exorcist steps because it was the fastest way to get to the key bridge, which was the fastest way to get to the Rossland stop in Virginia, which from time to time I convinced myself was closer than walking to Foggy Bottom to get the Metro back to Capitol Hill. So I spent quite a lot of time on that street that summer. And I had no, I have no recollection of this film coming out that summer, none at all. I mean, I was wrapped up in my own crap at the time, but it's just fascinating to, especially that opening shot where it just tracks right down the street. And I'm like, oh my God, I was there. I was there. I was there. So there's that memory, which made it kind of uncanny. The writing of this film is, it's great. I just think it's so well-written. It's very funny. It's wry, you might say, as befitting that of a, of a screenwriter directing his own material. And very natural for a yeah. supernatural horror film, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure he's really meant to be a director, as evidenced by some of the film's weirder flourishes. Um, that's oh, even... I could not disagree with you more. That's, but that's fine. Continue. That's fine. No, sure. Uh, that seem. I mean, some of them seem inserted for the sake of weirdness. But what I do like about the film is the way it tries to be something other than its predecessor. You know, as sequels go, it is among the more successful. You know, when you think about how sequels can always be a case of diminishing returns, this is not that. I like the way it almost becomes a different genre. It's it's taking a minor character from the first film. It fleshes out his story. 
it's only loosely tying in the idea of demonic possession, at least originally, the way it was intended. It's not and how it kind fi- of becomes a procedural, right? Well, no, like no, no, that's, police that's procedural. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's not how the film ended up, which is a shame, because I think it does go completely off the rails. Incidentally, who is this Damien you mentioned? Don't you know? I know nothing, except I must go on killing Daddy. I must shame him. Are they calling these Gemini killings in the papers? You must get them to do that, Lieutenant. It's important. The Gemini is dead. No, I am not. I'm alive. I go on. I breathe. Look at me. Look at me and tell me what you see. I see a man who looks like Damien Karras. There are two great performances in this film. Um, One is by George C. Scott, of course, and... One is by Brad Dourif, and both are over the top in their own way. I mean, there's some there's some schmacting going on in this film, but Dourif is as eerie and as strange as can be. And even though he just sits there the whole time talking to Kinderman, he completely captivates the screen. It is one He's of magnetic. I mean, yeah. he is really when you talk about you know screen villains or screen killers. Or even just just narrow it down to serial killers. You know, you think of Buffalo Bill or Hannibal Lecter. Um, you know, you even think of films about serial killers like Zodiac, on which the Gemini killer is allegedly based. He comes across as more menacing, more bizarre, and yet completely grounded in a weird way. It's just like there's nothing fabulous about him. He's not like a Bond villain. He's just straight up a lunatic sitting there in his cell, very, very even-handed, to outright screaming at George C. Explosive at George C. Scott. And to me, I was like, oh, this is why Brad Dourif is Brad Dourif. Like, Mm. I had had seen him in other films, like Blue Velvet, which was four Mm. years earlier than this. But this film gives him a chance to just do something that I don't think he ever did before, and I don't think he ever did again. Well, I mean, he is sort of chewing the scenery alongside Mm -hmm. George C. Scott. He's Mm -hmm. got to match him Mm -hmm. in terms of his level. But I will also say that I think the film is filled with great idiosyncratic performances Mm -hmm. nearly across the board. Every supporting character, every bit player who has a line of dialogue in this movie, I think, is really excellent. Uh, And in fact, I even enjoy the sort of uh, bevy of uh, of lunatics in the psych ward at the hospital, most of whom, as we should probably discuss, are um, are very elderly women. I mean, it leads me to a a big question of this film is the question. What's the difference between Colm Wilkinson and Nicole Williamson? No, no, that's not because I still don't know. I think one was in Les Mis and one was not. No, it's, it's, uh, it does seem that it's a regular hospital because, you know, father Dyer is admitted for some condition. There's a little boy who is admitted later in the film. And yet it does seem like, most of what we see of this hospital is a psych ward, you know, or a, a dementia ward with these, shall we say, old folks who are kind of going about their business, in which case, um, 
it's pretty sad to watch because it's really about the inevitable decay of the mind and the body. Um, you know, and Father Dyer and Lieutenant Kinderman talk quite a lot about this in in somewhat hilarious terms, I should say. I mean, they clearly have great admiration for each other. And when we talk about the writing in this film, the scenes between Kinderman and Dyer are probably some of the best. I mean, the carp scene is so good. It's so funny. My wife's mother is visiting father. And Tuesday night she's cooking as a carp. It's a tasty fish. I, I have nothing against it. But because it's supposedly filled with impurities, she buys it live. And for three days it's been swimming up and down in my bathtub. Up and down. And I hate it. I can't stand the sight of it. Moving its gills. Now you're standing very close to me, Father. Have you noticed? Yes. I haven't had a bath for three days. I can't go home until the carp is asleep. <laughs> because if I see it swimming, I'll kill it. I also want to talk about the the look of the film because again I don't think he's a born director. He has instincts. He makes choices, okay? And um some of them are very good. Let's talk about the dream sequence. There's a sequence Let's in which talk about the dream sequence. Kinderman uh, dreams that he is in some grand hall which is also a train station or something. It's gorgeously shot and lit I, yes. the light is just streaming in from these windows and it's a beautiful scene to look at it features an incredible array of people including a big band fabio fabio samuel l jackson as a blind man talking about deafness the murder victims uh, of the gemini killer and for god knows what reason former georgetown basketball star patrick ewing as the angel of death it's Blatty's interpretation of the afterlife, right? Yeah. It's the it's the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul crossed with a train station. And I think mm. it's meant to be some sort of bardo or purgatory right. space. Right. You know? Right. Um, and it's incredibly surreal. It's exceptionally beautiful. Yeah. Um, you know, to your point about the light and the atmosphere mm -hmm. and all of these things. And it's sort of like angels communicating with uh you know with non uh supernatural life forms via ham radio you know i mean yeah. it's a really strange scene and in that moment in that sort of surreal place and that surreal scene he's collapsing past present and future onto itself because in this moment in addition to seeing the the sort of murder victims that we've met in the sort of brief run-up to the scene, which happens fairly early in the film, he encounters Father Dyer in this space. And when he wakes up from the dream, he gets the phone call that Dyer is no longer with us. Dyer yeah. has died, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of this premonition, this kind of psychic dream, this surreal vision. But it's because of things like that and, and the kind of, visual language and the kind of visual poetry of that scene 
and also of a lot of the the detail that he's showing us that really fleshes out these locations, these spaces, what it says about the characters, that I have to disagree with you and, and suggest that I think Blatty really does direct the hell out of this film. Let's talk about the Mrs. Clelia sequence. I can't get enough of Mrs. Clelia. With the invisible radio. Look, what makes a great film is that it is the sum of its parts, you know, and that everything is there for a reason. You and I are going to agree to disagree about some of this, which is fine. But I, I just think there are things that, that are in this film to be strange, to be weird, to scare you, but that don't really have to be there in the sense that they, they, they don't add anything to the film other than that they scare you or or make the film feel strange. The whole Mrs. Clelia sequence with the, with the radio that she wants Kinderman to fix. I mean, this whole thing is, it's wonderfully funny. It's well-written. It's got wit. But in the end, for me, it's, it's just about a, a sad old lady with dementia who laments that, uh, quote, nothing ever gets fixed around here, just a bunch of pies and pies anchovies. anchovies. She asks if he can see her radio. He says yes. She says he's really holding a telephone. She's actually holding nothing. Again, it's a great scene, but in the service of what exactly? Please explain. Well, I mean, in, in the service of establishing establishing character, right? I mean, the important thing that we have to know about these older uh, patients at the hospital is that they are in fact non-compass mentis because mm. as James Veneman, the Gemini killer, Brad Dourif slash Jason Miller in the padded cell tells us he is able to continue his sort of reign of terror he's able to continue the the sort of trajectory of gemini killings because of old friends who help him out he's in fact referring to these mentally incapacitated patients in this open ward who are able to sort of come and go right uh and and get out into the world and and perpetrate his reign of terror uh, and and also in that moment when Kinderman, George C. Scott, is relating to her, I don't find that he's um, diminishing her condition or herself as a character. I feel like he's treating her with a certain kindness that he we is. rarely see. I don't think he. I don't think they're making fun of her. I think it's sad in a genuine way. There's regret and there's loneliness and a sense of dread in this film that hangs over all of these people in this entire ward, you know, and it takes it fairly seriously. Yes. You know, is, as funny as some of the dialogue is and some of the scenes are, there's nothing really funny about the condition of these people, you know? Right. So I didn't mean to indicate that it was anything, but everything you've just said is is true. And, and I like that. I like the fact that he is somehow he or his master, shall we say, is somehow um, getting through to these people and getting them to do these things. The question I had about Mrs. Clelia is, okay, so she's one of the patients that we get to know. And we get to know that she is you know, not of sound mind, but apparently all of these people are of sound body 
because they're able to commit these atrocious crimes. Well, when the power of Satan yes okay uh, okay surging through them you know right right so that's that's fine okay so i can i can buy that i mean Um, how does it how does a 12 year old child do it in the first when she's no that's a good point that's a good point throwing grown men out of the window and down the stairs that's a good point we don't actually see any of these crimes committed we just see the aftermath of them which Um, is a very fascinating point and and also the only time we actually see somebody going to commit one of the crimes it's 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 nurse x vivica lindfors mm-hmm. who shows up at kinderman's house very late in the film and you see she has this sort of superhuman strength and she throws yes. a policeman across the room and kinderman's able to kind of jump in and save his daughter but he gets sort of thrown well, no, around he isn't he gets thrown around and his mother-in-law is able to save his daughter i'm sorry you're yes i sit corrected um (laughs) but at the same time going back to mrs clelia i just i wonder for all of that wonderful dialogue and conversation is all of that just sort of meant to say she's not of sound mind no i think in fact uh what i wanted to conclude that that thought with is that i think in fact what all of blatty's choices do in this film is unsettle us as an audience and leave us uh, uncertain of what to expect next right Um, and and the collision of all of these strange surreal flourishes or gestures or choices that he makes really all are working to keep us slightly off balance as an audience right Right, we don't know whether we're meant to laugh or feel sorry for we don't know if we're meant to be amused or frightened we don't know what exactly our relationship to this story is yeah and i think that that is part of what contributes to making it such a successful entertainment it it does throw us off and it may just be the way you and i come at films in general you know and you know what a big fan of of david lynch i am and you know that he there's a lot of strangeness in those films but the thing is is that none of them feel out of place and all of them feel like they're they're part of a a cohesive whole they're they're adding up to something even in something as as strange and offbeat as a racer head you had something to tell me please sit down Paper drive? I haven't had a chance yet to read them. I just keep them till I do. I hate to miss the science articles. They're good. Let's talk about Dr. Temple in his temple. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Temple in his office, right? I mean, everything that we experienced in that office is, in fact, advancing what we know about the character of Dr. Temple, right? He has ashtrays 
exploding with um, old cigarette butts. He's got like strange, you know, mandalas on the wall next to sort of like newspapers that he's saving to read the science articles in, <laughs> you know. But ultimately what it becomes is a, a panoply of character studies where there are so many idiosyncrasies. I can sort of seed the point that maybe Blatty as a filmmaker is is perhaps a little self-indulgent in, yeah. in including all of it. Yeah. I think that is also very often uh, a pitfall for a director who happens to be shooting a work that he's also written. Can we talk a little bit about how this film in a way is a textbook case of studio interference? What little research I did has led me to believe that there was a, a whole other movie here that he didn't initially want the word exorcist to even be in the title because of exorcist two. He, he didn't, didn't want to acknowledge that exorcist two was a thing existed. Exactly. Right. So to call it exorcist three would be to acknowledge the existence of, of two. So I guess he wanted to call it Legion, but the studio in order to cash in on the success of the first film insisted it be called exorcist three. Um, Wouldn't he, you make that same decision though? No. I don't think I would. Actually. You as a, with your marketing acumen, would not take the title of a film that was a a runaway global hit, and put it on top of the sort of third installment in the trilogy. I don't think I would do it nowadays because I think audiences are smarter. Oh, but well, I think in 1990, I think what you know, a lie. audiences are idiots. I'm trying to think of a of a sequel that had a different title, and people still went to see it and understood that it was a sequel. Could they have somehow communicated in their marketing that this was a spiritual sequel in a way to The Exorcist without having the word in the title and, and having the word Legion in there, um, and somehow suggest that it's not just about one demonic possession but many, as the word Legion implies. I think about in the original film, The Exorcist, there is a moment when Father Karras is speaking to Reagan McNeil and Reagan is taunting him about the, the recent death of his mother. And she asks mm. if Damien would like to speak to his mother. Reagan explains to Karis that she's in here as an in inside of Reagan with right. us. And so to me, I have always only, even from the ripe old age of 12, assumed that it was carrying forth the, you know, the idea that, that sort of proposed in the first, that it's not the devil that's inside Reagan, but it is a, a host of demonic entities or demonic entities with sort of yes. faces or names or what have yes. you. Yes. And so, you know, I think in fact, in, in this deeply uh, <laughs> adulterated edit that we know as the Exorcist Three, in the exorcism scene that was demanded by Morgan Creek. Right. When inside the cell, supernatural lightning bolts are striking the floor and yep. knocking holes in it, and a host of you know hellions are are emerging, are, are sort of rising up through the floor of the space between Kinderman and and Veneman. Karis on a crucifix. Well, yes, I mean, and that the the shifting of the 
personage on the crucifix, right? Because at first we see that it's a, a statue of Jesus Christ that we see earlier in the film, but it's rendered in blackface, which is also referred to earlier. Ingots are in the eyes, but then yeah. it becomes Karis. You know which is I mean? a, re- so, a reference to the killing of the young African-American boy, which yes. is the first murder that we come to understand in the film. Crucified on oars. That's and right. And so uh, the, the emergence of that, I mean, quite literal legion of, of uh, you know, the denizens of hell right. is more to me what that refers to. Okay, I, I buy that. I buy that. Okay. And I think, I think it can have multiple meanings. Um, sure. The vessel in the padded cell is a body that is hosting both the Gemini killer and Karis, it would seem. I don't know who else is in there. I know that that it occasionally has Colleen Dewhurst's voice oh, com- my coming, God. coming out of it. Let's talk about that. Can we Instead just talk about that? What I will say is that Colleen Dewhurst has such a magnificent voice. I don't know what Mercedes McCambridge did to herself to get that voice. I think she, she went through something. Drinking, she, smoking. Uh, swallowing raw eggs. Dewhurst, you know, probably just acted but anyway yeah she's great she's i mean you know unbilled you only find out in the end credits that she was the voice you know her voice really uh, unlike mercedes mccambridge even though it is a bit adulterated even though it is a bit affected it's sort of real and the filmmakers employ it in i think kind of interesting ways may the lord be in your heart help you to confess your sins i have uh uh scrupulous conscience father this need to confess uh, so many things if i step on two straws in the shape of a cross i feel that i have to confess it it torments me try to make a good confession and remember christ forgives us all of our sins only little things nothing 17 of them father getting back to one thing that you pointed out earlier which was that blatty did not want to have an exorcism in this film nor did he want to have damien Karras in it he wanted it to be more of a serial killer type film sort of like a thomas harris hannibal lecter story But the studio forced him to put an exorcism in the film and to feature a new character played by Nicole Williamson, who performs this exorcism, all of which is non-existent in Blatty's novel and in his original version of the film. Can you talk about what else was added and how the two versions are different? Because I think it's key to understanding this film and how one vision was compromised The reason I bring it up is because I think that Blatty's version, which eventually was put out by Scream Factory, makes for a darker but more satisfying version of the story. I think everybody kind of agrees about that. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. certainly people like Mark Kermode, who worked on the draft, apparently, with Blatty. But uh, see, now, here's the thing. I have never been able to to see the, the version of the film called Legion. You know, I've right. only ever right. seen Exorcist 3. Yep. Um, I've seen some deleted moments. I've seen some photography. Um, and also, from what I understand, understand it was initially 
Blatty's intention to have Miller reprise his role. Miller, his alcoholism had progressed to such a degree that no one was confident, sadly, that he would be able to do the speeches. The, The... writing of it at times is incredibly theatrical. You know, those kind of two-hander scenes between the Gemini killer and Lieutenant Kinderman. And so, uh, you know, I have seen a deleted prologue from the film in which Karis's body is taken from the the foot of the steps and is in a hospital. He's in a place where he is pronounced. Where Yes, where he's pronounced dead. And it's Dorif laying on the slab as Father Karras, which is, I mean, it's so strange. And, and of course, I mean, the, the sort of logic, the construction of the, the experience for the audience obviously is completely uh, changed by the fact that at some point, you know, there's a, a lightning flash or a yeah, you know, yeah. the camera cuts to Dorif has the face and voice of Jason Miller sitting across from his best friend, Lieutenant Kinderman. Look, if that lightning strike hadn't come in, we never would have met Father Morning. We never would have seen him get stuck to the ceiling and see his skin peel off. We wouldn't have the sequence on the floor, you know, with the floor opening up and Karis rising out on a crucifix and the, the hands. Writhing the bodies. Hands, yep. And, yeah. We would not have Morning coming back to life and Karis briefly regaining consciousness and urging Kinderman to shoot him. We would not have had any of that. All we would have had was Kinderman shooting Karis in an attempt in to the- kind of kill the to kill the Gemini killer, to kill Satan, whatever he's doing. Or as I like to call it, William Peter Blatty's night mother. <laughs> <laughs> the film ends, okay, in a in a cemetery as we're watching apparently Karis being buried again or the Gemini killer being buried. It's, it's clearly Karis's grave. You would have thought he was buried 15 years earlier, but apparently he's being buried again. I, I'm wondering what you make of that that end scene, which was clearly grafted on by Morgan Craig. If anybody rushed in after that shooting, they would have seen that it was the Gemini killer that Kinderman shot. As it's explained in moments that are no longer in the version (laughs) that we see, there is another corpse of a headless other priest in the grave with Damien Karras's headstone on it. There was another you know, another brother right. was meant to uh, to dress Karis's body. Right. Yes, I do um, remember for the closed about casket funeral. And as it is explained to us in this film, the Gemini killer James Veneman is also killed around the same time that Karis dies. Yes, 15 years ago, right. Right, right, and so the soul of the Gemini killer is transferred into the body of Damien Karis, though because of the, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) the the jet lag on the spiritual plane or whatever, you know, Karis's brain has been, uh, uh, as the Gemini killer tells us in The Exorcist 3, has been turned to jelly. 
and it takes the spirit of the Gemini killer 15 years to, reconstitute to reactivate it. the yes. brain. Right. I mean, right. Come right. On. You know, I mean, right. like th this kind of these kinds of details are like out of, you know, the movie Soap Dish. You know what I mean? Well, it's like he's got Kopfgeschlag. I mean, his brain is going <laughs> to laterally explore in the next five houses. You author of pain. You corrupter of justice and innocence and youth. You begetter of death. Sworn enemy of all the human race. All of these horrific things that are happening in the world that Kinderman is aware of, right? That he is, uh, that we see him sort of actively sort of fighting against throughout the film. By why. saying, I believe in you, is he saying, I, has he in a way kind of turned to the dark side? Or is he just saying, I believe there is evil in the world? He knows that there are all of these horrible, horrible things out there, but he also believes in his friend, Damien Karras. Right. And it's all, you know, I mean, it is a trope in exorcism films that you need <laughs> to, I mean, it truly is that you need right, to right. speak to the person inside. You need to yeah. reach into the possessed person, the yeah. victim, yeah. and appeal to the whatever sort of last remaining shred of humanity is there in order to bring it back to the surface. That's what Kinderman does before he before the final exorcism by gunfire, do you know? Which sure. seems to be a pretty effective method at dispatching a demon, you know? Just shoot the guy who's possessed and the demon goes away. And the winner is... Well, the time has come. Thank you, Barbara. And now it's time for the awards segment of our show in which we give out prizes for the scenes and characters that we think made this such a memorable film. So let's start with uh, the most disturbing scene, uh, the so-called Tom Six Award. So I am going to just speak to this from a deeply personal place from the first time I saw this film. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this also resonates for a lot of other people who appreciate The Exorcist Three, And that is... The scene in the hospital late at night that sort of gives this film the appellation of having the best jump scare in sort of horror history. You know, in this scene where we find nurse Amy Keating, uh, played by Tracy Thorne, very importantly, her last name begins with a K because that is a, uh, a linking thread for all of the victims of the Gemini killer. Um, it's very late at night at the hospital. She's on the desk. She's trying to sort of do rounds and, and take care of all of her administrative duties. There are some security guards around. It's a lengthy scene. 
which is all about quotidian functions that she has to perform, right? We're seeing all of it happen. And we're waiting, we're waiting for, uh, for something horrible to happen. And Blatty takes us in terms of pacing and tempo and all of these choices that he makes in, into a place where we can't imagine that anything scary is actually going to happen. He just plants the camera, doesn't he? I mean, he just yeah. sits it down. There's no sound. There's no music, really. I mean, there's some sound. There's, there's sound. There's no score, in other words. He doesn't underscore it at all. He right. Just but there's the also, camera down. There's no conversation. It's the click of heels. It's Correct. the jingle that's, of keys. It's that's a what door I mean. opening and closing. And then, you know, as Nurse Keating is going from one patient door to the other, to the other, she opens a door, goes in, turns out a light, and immediately is pursued by a shroud-wearing figure carrying that bone saw. And Blatty's camera pushes in so hard in a zoom <laughs> and it all collides in this moment that creates this spectacular jump scare that I will never sort of get over. But I do think that the sort of construction of that scene is pretty masterful. And it is the thing that everyone remembers when they've seen this film. Right. Um, and it, it scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. And I loved having the hell scared out of me by it, you know, but it, it has remained with me the entire time. So I'm giving the award to that scene. So you're, you're equating disturbing and, and scary in this case. I mean, it disturbed me. Right. I mean, everything okay. about it is, is meant to, to make us feel uneasy. I was disturbed by it. The way that people are killed in this film, the Gemini killers methods, the way in which the first, the boy, Thomas Kintry, I believe is his name, the young yeah. boy is killed. I think he, as you said, is crucified on oars. There are ingots placed in his eyes. His head is decapitated and replaced by a Christ head, which is in blackface. The killing of Father Dyer in which the blood is siphoned from his body through a three-foot catheter into very neatly placed vials beside the bed. We don't see any of these things happening. And I, you know, I think it would have been a very different film if they had actually arrive late, leave early. There's a lot of telling and not showing in this film. But even in the telling, Brad Dorif describing the way in which he killed Father Dyer with the three-foot catheter, inserting it into the inferior or, shall we say, or the superior vena cava. Superior vena cava. I mean, it, it's a matter of preference, right? I it's mean, It's all a matter of preference. The calm, detached way in which he describes how that murder was done. I mean, first of all, the performance itself is beyond disturbing. But that moment, to me, I have to give it to... Dorif's description of the death of Father Dyer. Let's go to something a little bit lighter. Let's go to most likable character. And it's pretty obvious to me that the character who wins that award for me is, of course, Lieutenant Kinderman. As nutty as George C. Scott is, and he is a nut. He is um, anger incarnate. He, he, is, is he, he <laughs> is. He is. And he goes from very funny and wry and dry and, you know, low key to completely a, you know, hunk a hunk of burning rage in yes. this film. 
I loved everything about him. I loved the way he sat and listened to Veneman. I love the way he had um, he cared about Mrs. Clelia. I love the interaction even between him and Nurse Allerton when she was wrapping up his hand after he like punched out the Gemini killer. I, there's just something that's so eminently likable about that character. Even when he commits murder at the end of the film, you know he does it for a good altruistic reason. So, Kinderman. I, I think I have to give it to Father Dyer. Oh, he's great. I, he's great. I think he's terrific. I love Ed Flanders' interpretation. Uh, you know, I, it's really hard to, to choose. You know what I mean? Like, between Kinderman and Dyer, it's mm. like picking your favorite child. And it really is the sort of true sense of friendship and camaraderie that these actors are able to communicate. Yep. It's a wonderful he's, life. It's a wonderful la 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 life. I think I'm going to give it to him. Let's move on to character that most deserved to live, the Ellen Ripley Award. You start on this one, sir. The character that most deserved to live and did not. Gosh, can I give an award to the same actor twice? Yeah, of course you can. This is our show, sir. It's our show, our rules, our right. time down here. Then I, I'm going to give it to Flan to Ed Flanders as well. Oh you my know? gosh! Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna sweep in the Bradford Lorick Awards tonight. Oh um, God! Yeah, I just... I just I love the character. Controversial choice. I um, have a feeling I know where you're going. I'm giving it to Father Damien Karras. <laughs> I thought you might, and I considered um, it. Yeah, I didn't want him to die in the first film. I liked him so much. But are you giving it to him for the first film? Or no. Are you giving it to him for this film? No, I'm giving it to him for this film because I, in a way, it's it's a mercy killing in the end, and it's a mercy killing. It's like a euthanizing, and he briefly sort of gains consciousness for a moment at the end in that chaotic scene. And he just, um, you know, I think it's Father Morning who says, you know, uh, Karis, you're free or something. And Kinderman takes advantage of that moment and just blows him away. And I think it's what Karis wanted. I think he recognized that he had to go and it was time. And for all that Jason Miller might have been going through at this time and whatever probably wasn't his voice they used for his character, poor guy. He dies at the end of the first film. His body is inhabited by the spirit of a serial killer in this film. You know, what he goes through and the end that he meets. I, I was sad to see him go for a second time, which leads us to uh, our next award, the character who most deserved to die again and again and again. And again, and um, again. <laughs> I'll start. I'm going to give it to um, our good friend, Brad Dourif, if only because he is the, the personification of evil. In this film, he is a nasty, nasty bit of work. I thought about giving it to Nurse Allerton because she is also a nasty piece nasty of work. Nasty piece of work, yes. But um, no, a you self-described know, bitch. You, sir, I'm assuming are going to give this one to Father Dyer as well? I'm going to give this to Dr. Temple because oh. I felt like he was the embodiment of weakness. That's a he good allows one. himself to be manipulated by mm -hmm. Veneman. And he's, he obviously is just kind of, 
fucked up in about a hundred different ways. Oh, you know? yeah. Um, and he reminds me, not for nothing, of my own psychiatrist. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in an office just like crammed with things, you know, I mean, like, how do you, how do you, how do you talk to somebody like that about your problems when, when theirs yeah. are so obviously yeah. on display? Um, and Dr. Temple offs himself, does he not? Well, I mean, there's a syringe, but syringes are used by other characters throughout the film to, sure. to administer this succinylcholine. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't care how or why he was dispatched but he is and I believe that he deserved to die and now we come to our final award where you're really uh I hate to say it you're gonna crucify me here oh, but you know what good you know what words this is this is the test of our our friendship sir most gratuitous moment in the film the Gaspar Noe slash Ken Russell award Eric I'm I'm abstaining from voting here because there's nothing gratuitous in this film. Because I find I find every uh. choice incredibly smart and and motivated. You know, I am only giving you movies to watch that I have great affection for. Okay. Um, and I don't think that there is an unearned moment in it. Uh, okay. So I don't I don't find anything gratuitous. About All right, it. you're gonna pass. It is a horror movie, of course. You you're know. gonna pass on this one. I'm I'm abstaining. So there is a tie for me for most gratuitous moment. Um, the first gratuitous moment is the scene in which Kinderman is leaving the day room with all of the old folks. And we suddenly see <laughs> Mrs. Clelia on the ceiling. I don't know what she was doing up there. Doesn't do anything for me. I mean, other than creep me out. And I guess, as you would say, you know, there's reason alone for that. I mean, it's meant to disturb you and throw you off. It doesn't help me appreciate the film more. It doesn't forward the plot. It doesn't forward my understanding of Mrs. Clelia. The other gratuitous moment for me is the most famous jump scare in the history of cinema. Oh. To me, oh. that scene serves no purpose other than to scare the living daylights out of you. Okay? It is technically yeah. a horror movie. Okay, okay. But you know what? Even horror movies have to make sense. That moment may be masterfully done. The shooting, the, the sound or lack thereof, the push in of the camera, as you put it, um, yes, it is a major jump scare and it has earned its place in the Pantheon. Does it make sense in the context of this film? No. And therefore wow. that and clearly on the ceiling, get my no way Russell award. Wow. wow. I know. But you know what? The thing is, is that because it's gratuitous, does that mean it, it's not scary? Um, no, I'm going to, I'll make that distinction. You listeners enjoyed this podcast. Why don't you give us a rating on iTunes? Tell your friends. Have a listening party. Bring some snacks. Hey, maybe even do something crazy, like subscribe. Our theme music is by the estimable Sir Cubworth. Research by our good friend IMDb, assisted by Los Angeles Bureau Chief Vic Apadia. Eric, it's so good of you to give credit to all of these contributors, but They're how can so our great. audience find you? You know, if you want, you can follow me on the Twitter. You can find me on the Letterboxd. Thank you, folks, for joining us tonight. We'll see you next time. 
at the internet's latest address for horror, 21 Jump Scare. <laughs>